Well, if you want a title for today's message, I've called it The Danger of Playing God. And I'd be grateful if you turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 4. As you know by now, the letter of James is split into four different sermons. And today we finish off the third sermon, which James started all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1. It goes to 4, verse 12. And it's all about dissensions within the community. It's all about divisions within the community that is the dispersion that James is seeking to care for and address. I'm quite pleased in some ways that it's the last message of Sermon 3 because it means that we can do some other things over Christmas and summer. So next week we're starting a four-week series um, entitled The Day I Met Jesus. We're then in January going to be going into the Psalms. And then in February we're going to be doing a series called Resolved where we really gather us together again as a church family and look at what are we resolved to do in 2018? What do we believe the Lord's putting on our heart and where are we resolved to move forward? And so we'll be going back into James about mid-March, something there. But before James leaves us this week, oh my, has he got something to share with us. In just two verses, he wants to complete his sermon about divisions. He's talked to us so far about taming the tongue the importance of making sure we receive wisdom from above and fight jealousy and selfish ambition, the warning against worldliness and the importance of not befriending the world but befriending the Lord. And within still the realm of dissensions and divisions in the community, he wants to talk to us this morning about one of the primary reasons why divisions exist, namely sinful judging. And this is what he says, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is good to sing. It is good to remind ourselves of the glories of Calvary. It's good to sing and reflect that when death was arrested, my life began. Lord, it has been a wonderful celebration of grace already this morning, and I pray that that celebration of grace would continue now as we look at what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received? What does it mean to walk, to eagerly maintain the unity? What does it mean to put to death sinful judging and understand that you are God and we are not? Lord, would you open our eyes to this this morning? Would you help us by your grace? Would it be done graciously? Yet would we all see our faces? Lord, help me by your grace. Amen. Ken Sandy, who is the founder and president of Peacemaker Ministries, gives the following illustration about a lady called Anne in a 2002 CCF article. And as I read it out, see if you can't relate to Anne. I knew it. I knew he was too proud to take criticism, thought Anne, and now I have proof. 
On the previous Sunday, Anna dropped a prayer card in the offering plate asking her pastor to stop in and pray for her when she went to the hospital with some, for some minor surgery. When he failed to come by, she called the church secretary and learned that her pastor had already been to the hospital that day to see another church member. So he has no excuse, she thought. He was in the building and knew I needed his support, but still he ignored me. He's resented me ever since I told him his sermons lack practical application. Now he's getting back at me by ignoring my spiritual needs, and he calls himself a shepherd. After brooding over his rejection for three days and sat down Saturday evening, I wrote a letter confronting her pastor about his pride, defensiveness, and hypocrisy. As she sealed the envelope, she could not help thinking about the conviction that he would surely feel when he opened his mail. The moment she walked into church the next morning, one of the deacons hurried over to her. Anne, I am so sorry. I need to apologize to you. When I took the prayer cards out of the offering plates last week, I accidentally left your card with the pledge cards. I didn't notice my mistake until last night when I was totaling the pledges. I'm so sorry, but I didn't get your request to the pastor. Before Anne could reply to the deacon, her pastor approached her with a warm smile. Anne, I was thinking about your comment about practical application as I finished my sermon last night. I hope you noticed the difference in today's message. Anne was speechless. And all she could think about was the letter that she had just dropped in a mailbox just three blocks from church. That is awkward. <laughs> I mean, as you hear her story, you're just like, ah. You know, as Anne would discover in that moment and the days that followed, sinful judging can put us in some really embarrassing situations, can't it? She thought she knew exactly what was going on in that pastor's heart. She didn't at all. The deacon had forgotten to give him the card. And the pastor was actually very affected by what she had shared about application. She found out in that moment that sinful judging can put us in some very embarrassing situations. But more than that, what she would discover and what we all discover when sinful judging comes into our life is sinful judging is not only embarrassing for us, but it can greatly damage others. It has a real effect on other people. It can offend people. It can upset people. It can greatly hurt people. The truth is sinful judging can greatly cripple a church. Sinful judging undermines unity by very nature. You know, when people are deciding, I know what's going on, and they're telling others about it. And that's not even the case. It, it cripples a church because you start to disunite. You start to take sides. And it starts to sap a leadership team's energy because they're spending all their time inward just trying to care for the sheep. And actually, it ruins a reputation outwardly as well. Because as people look on, they think, why would I want to be a part of that? <laughs> you guys are worse than the clubs I'm a part of. You gossip about each other. You bitch about each other. Why would I even want to be a part of something like that? Sinful judging cripples a church. It offends and upsets people. And ultimately, it destroys relationships. And sadly, without a doubt, that is exactly what is going on here in James chapter 4 as he addresses the dispersion churches because they're gossiping about each other and slandering each other all the time. 
because they're sinfully judging each other all the time. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this about them. He says, James's command to desist from harmful speech tells us that the early church, so historically near to Christ's heart that his own brother was one of its pastors, was so often engaged in mutually speaking evil against one another. But they were puncturing one another repeatedly with fine gastric mixes of slander, gossip, and criticism, both behind the back and face to face. Listen. And it was the devil's feast. So it was. James has already told us earlier on in the chapter in verse 6 that when our tongue gets out of control with this fire, it's as if we're speaking the very words of hell itself. And that's what's happening in this church as James writes to them. Criticism, slander, gossip, it's everywhere. Sinful judging is happening all over the place and the devil is having a feast on their carcasses and they don't even see it. So James writes to them because he loves them and he wants to help them see, guys, this is wrong and you are destroying your, your testimony and you're destroying the unity and you are destroying one another. And in God's kindness, he ensured that these words would be God-breathed because these words were not only for the dispersion, they're for us as well. They're for every church, every family that comes together as brothers and sisters. God has breathed this through his scripture because he wants us to also work out how do we eagerly maintain the unity? How do we strive together in the gospel? How do we avoid damaging and offending and upsetting and hurting others? Well, that's what James addresses in these two verses. So I have three points this morning from the two verses. Number one, the clear command. Number two, the sobering reasoning. And then number three, the glorious remedy. It may only be two verses, but it is packed with important information. So number one, the clear command. Verse 11a, look down again. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. See, the people he's addressing here in this moment, he wants to remind them yet again, you are family. That's the context here. You're brothers and sisters. God has paid the price. He sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told so that you may have life and that in abundance and he's knitted you together within the context of church, which is family. You are brothers. You are sisters. Sovereign grace, do you understand that? Do you see that? The people around you are brothers and sisters, not as sovereign grace defined, as biblically defined. God is telling you they are your brothers and sisters. So, do not speak evil against one another. Phrase speak evil simply means don't speak down or speak against. But then in our context, it'd be like saying, don't speak badly of one another. Just don't let it happen. Do not speak evil. Don't speak down. Don't speak against. Don't speak badly against one another. You know, as Christians, I think you're probably thinking in this moment, did he have to go to college for that? Is it taking him 17 years to work out that? You know, as Christians, we automatically think, do we not? Well, that's just obvious. I know as a Christian I'm not to slander. I know as a Christian I'm not to gossip. I know as a Christian I'm not to speak words that are clamorous or 
angry or bitter. I understand as a Christian that I should not be speaking about my fellow brothers and sisters with gossip or slander or bitterness or clamor or anger. I get that. Do we not? Yet here's the mistake I think so many Christians make. They think that is true unless what I'm telling people is true. And then it's fine. Because if it's true, well, it's different, right? I mean, if what I'm passing on is true, then it isn't gossip, right? Because it's true. If what I'm passing on is true, then it isn't slander, right? And if it, what I'm saying is true, then, then I almost have a moral obligation to tell others about it, right? Even if it is ruins a person's reputation and or character, then surely I have a moral obligation in my life to tell other Christians about it. So I would not want to gossip about somebody in my life group that wasn't true. No, no, no. But if it's true, everybody should know. Because I just want them to pray for that individual. I just want to care for that individual that I think everybody should know. I think that is a common, common Christian habit. At which point James himself looks you back in the eye and says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He does not say, do not speak evil against one another unless it is true and then go for your life. No, I don't see that. Whether it's true or whether it's false, do not speak bad about one another. It should have no place amongst us. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it again. He says, slander is malicious speech that is untrue. But the command here forbids any speech, whether it is true or false, which runs down another person. Certainly no Christian should ever be party to slander, making false charges against another's reputation. But even more penetrating is this challenge to us all, to refrain from any speech which intends to run down someone else, even if it is totally true. I think that's different to the way commonly we think. But James is very clear. Do not speak bad about one another. Do not speak in a way that would leave anybody else with either a wrong or even a right view of somebody, but they shouldn't even be aware of that. Do not speak evil against one another. And then in verses 11 and 12, he gives the reasoning for that. And it's so important that we understand the reasoning. Because the reasoning is indeed sobering. It is painful, and I think it is sobering as to why it's so wrong to speak bad about one another. It says that's point two, the sobering reasoning. And what you discover is within these two verses, there are two reasons why speaking bad about one another is so wrong. The first is this. In sinful judging, we're putting ourselves above the law. When we judge others, We're elevating ourselves above the law of God himself. So what it says, verse 11b, says, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. What's he on about there? The law he's on about is the royal law that we've already heard about in chapter 2, verse 8. The royal law that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, 
all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength, and to love our neighbor as yourself, right? That's the royal law, the two greatest commandments that Jesus talks about. Love the Lord your God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here's James's point. When you're sinfully judging others, and you're passing on that information, would you want your neighbor to do that to you? Would you want other people in your life group or in your church to be speaking about you the way you speak about them? Oh, but Dave, it's true. It's true. Okay. Well, I know lots of things about people that are true, but would leave people with a very negative impression. How would you feel if I go telling them? This is what they're really like behind the scenes. I know they argue all the time. It's true. Do you want everybody knowing that? See, if we're honest, whether it's true information or false information, we don't want everybody knowing different things, do we? None of us actually want that. And James is saying, listen, if you're then judging others and you're passing on information about others, which is evil and negative, you're breaking the law. You're above the law because you're not doing to others what you would have them do to you. You are not loving your neighbor as yourself. It's almost almost like you look down on the law and go, well, that is the law, but I'm above that. It's not for me. That's for other people. But me, I'm just passing on information. So you think you're better than the law? You think God blew it when he gave us the law? There was something better and it's a new law written by you? James is very clear. Listen, in sinful judging, you're putting yourself above the law. And we have no right to do that. Now, just by way of a point of clarity, I hope this doesn't confuse you, but it is an important point. James is not saying here that as Christians, we should therefore never, ever make judgments about others. Because as Christians, you're commanded to. And here's where the complexities begin. He isn't saying, therefore, never, ever judge anybody. Just be morally neutral about everybody. No, that's not what he's saying. See, in the Bible, it's clear that judgments about others are, are, to, are to be important. So Matthew 7, verse 15 to 16, Jesus himself tells us that we are to pass judgment on false teachers. See what he says. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, how do we spot them? He tells us. You will recognize them by their fruits. So he's saying, listen, watch preachers and teachers. Watch them. If they're going to set themselves up as a teacher or a pastor or a prophet or whatever it be, watch their lives. Because you'll be able to tell by their fruit. You'll be able to tell by the way they live their life and who they really are, whether what they're saying really is coming from the Lord or from the pit of hell itself. You have to make a judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, we're informed by Paul that we're to judge someone who is openly living in sin and remove them from the fellowship, take them through church discipline. He said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So quite clearly, he's talking about an incident there. There's two other instances in the Bible, two things you can be removed from church fellowship for. One is divisiveness. So where somebody is just taking you on and they are causing divisions in the church, we as pastors will actively stand against you and we will tell the church. The other is somebody that is committing sexual immorality and that you've caused them, you've called, called them to repent and they don't. They keep living it. That's the only other one. Where you then say, my friend, we are telling the church we are removing you from fellowship and we're telling the church why. Well, there's judgments involved in that, is there not? There's discernment involved in that. There's talking involved in that. And then as a church, we have to make a decision to we are putting them out of the fellowship. Why? Ultimately, so that they may come to their senses and realize what they no longer have so that they may be restored again. It's not punishment in the sense of, oh, they're in real trouble. It's removing them so that they may come to their senses so that they may come back. But there's judgments involved in that. There's discernment involved in that. Hebrews 5, verses 13 to 14. We're told that we are to make judgment calls between that which is good and that which is evil. And so we read, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So now he's talking about distinguishing between good and evil. Now, I grew up in a very charismatic environment. And I think we were wrongly informed that really distinguishing between good and evil has nothing to do with your Bible. It's just having a really strong sense of Jesus and me, and then you're just going to get it all. I grew up in Corinth, really. There was stuff going on all over the place. And it was all under the banner of spirituality. God's just told me to sleep with my secretary. No, you are losing your marbles and you are hearing Satan talking to you. When the Hebrew writer is talking about that, he's saying getting skilled in this. Understand your Bible. Get into your word. And then as you get into the word, as you grow in the faith, you will instinctively know that's right or no, that's not right. We should be able to go there, but we clearly can't do that. This would be a wise decision. This would be foolish. Why? Because they understand the word. And we have to make judgments and discernment calls in life, don't we? James then is not talking, so that we're clear, he's not talking about never ever using discernment or passing judgment on others. He's not talking about that. He's talking about sinful judging. Sinful judging is this. It is a critical spirit that looks on at others, readily sees the blemish, and then seeks to run that person down. That's sinful judging. Sinful judging is having a critical spirit of heart, probably often nearly all the time. And so whenever you see people, all you see is the blemish, and then you run because you want to tell your wife, hey, you know what, I noticed that person wasn't at church today. Really? Oh, yeah. They weren't at church. Oh, probably at the beach again. Mm-hmm, I would imagine. We'll probably never see them again. They don't, clearly don't love Jesus. Yeah, that's what I've been thinking. I've been concerned. I've seen the way they parented. Do you see the way they speak to their daughter? Oh, my goodness. A Christian would not do that. I bet they won't come to group. Probably not. Haven't been for weeks. No. 
And then they do come to group. And you say, oh, um, didn't see you there on Sunday. We were praying for you. Praying for you. And didn't see you there on Sunday. No, my mom had an accident as she was in hospital. Oh, that's what we assumed. Yes, that's what we assumed. Sinful judging is all about thinking we know, thinking what's going on, and all we see is blemishes and difficulties in people, and then we run to others and tell them about it. That's sinful judging. The Bible calls us to judge charitably, but it does call us to use discernment in situations. But sinful judging is never praised in the Bible. It is a critical spirit that looks on at others, sees the blemish, and then seeks to run that person down. And James is saying, stop it! Do not do it! Because in doing it, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself. Would you want other people to talk about you the way you talk about them? It's a question you've got to answer. And if the answer is no, then I rest my case. Then something's going on that's not right. James is very clear. Sinful judging, we're putting ourselves above the law. And then number two, the second reason why it's so evil and wrong is because in sinful judging... We're putting ourselves above God himself. You're basically saying in sinful judging, you're better than God. You sit above him. What he says in verse 12, he says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one lawgiver. One who sees. So who are you? Who are you? What are you doing? See, James is very clear that there is only one who can ultimately see. And this phrase, save and destroy, is actually a theme that runs through the entire Bible. And time and time again, we realize that in God's sovereignty, he's the only one with the ability and capability to save and destroy others. We see it time and time again. So in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, we read, So see now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me, for I put to death and I bring to life. Only God can do that. Only God can put to death. Only God can bring to life. Hannah then repeats the same thing in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2, verse 6. She says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He alone brings down to Shoal, and raises up. Only God can do that. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. Only Jesus is in control over all those different things. And then in Job chapter 40, verses 7 through 14, a, a chapter that I often go back to when in pride I'm getting a bit big for my boots. I would suggest you do the same when you feel arrogance coming in your heart. This is how God responds to Job from the whirlwind about himself. So what he says, brace yourself like a man. I mean, imagine the scene. You are sitting down, there is a whirlwind around you, and God is just telling you, okay, brace yourself like a man. Already I'm nervous. And he continues, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? 
And can your voice thunder like this? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. And crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you, Job, that your own right hand can save you. I mean, talk about a humbling moment. He's saying, Job, Job, who do you think you are? Your arm can't save, your arm can't destroy. Only I can do that. Unless I'm mistaken, Job, in which case put your hand up, let me know, and then I will admit to you that, yes, of course, I've been wrong all along. Your right hand can save you. See, all the way through Scripture, we learn that it's only God that has the capability and ability to save and destroy. Only He can judge, because He alone has the power to do so, and only He alone knows all things. Only God knows all things. Only God knows the desires of a man's heart. Only God knows exactly what's going on all the time. Only God knows the thoughts of what somebody is thinking before they're even thinking them. Which is why he says, so who are you to judge your neighbor? His premise is, do you know all things? Can you see inside their mind? Can you see inside their hearts? If we're honest, well, no. no. I can't see inside their mind. I can't see inside their hearts. Exactly. So who are you to judge? God can judge because he sees and knows all things. And yet we don't, do we? I mean, for a start, we're sinful, aren't we? Our judgments are at best clouded by our fallenness, aren't they? All the time. Our judgments are clouded when we see people because sometimes we do get upset or disappointed or offended by others. At best, our judgments are clouded between us and them because we're sinful. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7 when he's talking about the log and the speck. He's not saying, listen, you should never challenge anybody about what's going on in their lives. He's saying, listen, as you do that, get the log out of your own face first before you start going after the speck. You take time to address the log in your eye, and now in love you can go and help them with their speck. We're sinful. We walk around with logs in our eyes, and we still think we see everything 2020. No, I can see it exactly. I know what's going on. No, you don't. You might have an inkling, but you don't know. Only God knows. We don't see like God does because we're sinful and also we are limited. God knows all things, sees all things, and can see a man or woman's heart. We can't. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 39 says, For you and you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. You and you only, Lord. You know all the hearts of the children. It's only you. And then sometimes we have the arrogance to go, oh, well, it's, yes, it is him, but I, I also have the gift of discernment and I know exactly what's going on in their hearts. No, you at best have a guess. You have no idea what's going on in their hearts. And so James is clear then, listen, we shouldn't be judging others because to do so, it puts us outside the law. We're doing something to our neighbor that we wouldn't want them to do to us. 
But secondarily, we're in danger of playing God here. Thinking that we see their hearts, we see what's going on in their minds, when simply you don't. Even your best friend, even your spouse, even your kids, you have no idea what's going on in their hearts. You just think you do. See, when you put all this together, I think if we're honest, working out when judging becomes sinful and when judging is good biblical discernment can be hard, can't it? It can be hard to work out, okay, should I, how, do you, how do you work this out? Is this sinful judging when I do this? Is it not? And I was thinking long and hard about it this week, working out how, how do you get your head around this? And I think there's two things, just two things that really help us work out if something is sinful judging or not. Two tests that I think we can ask ourselves. Now, the first is this. If you find yourself thinking about others, believing that you already know their hearts, then already sinful judging is right at your door. If you find yourself already assessing, yeah, I haven't seen them for a while. In fact, did you notice? Did you, did you notice this morning, dear? Because I did. Did you notice that when we walked in, Brendan, he looked away as I looked at him. Did you see that? There is clearly something going on in his heart. Well, yes, actually, I did notice as well. And I, I did notice he did the same to one of our children the other week. And, oh, he's clearly got an issue with us. Sinful judging. You see something and then you decide, I know exactly what's going on. No, you don't. Maybe he had something in his eye. Maybe something else caught his attention. But we think we know with 2020 vision. A child doesn't do the dishes when you've asked them to do it. Oh, would you believe it? We've asked them four times this week, yet again they're not doing it. Child, what is going on? And then they say, oh, coming, Dad. I was just helping Savannah put her shoes on. Oh, that's okay, dear. Yes, I knew. Yes, I knew that. No, I didn't know that. I thought yet again you were being disobedient. Do you see how we do this? Listen, the moment we are tempted to think about others, believing that we already know why they're doing what they do, you must be on guard at that point because sinful judging is right at the door. The best you can say is, I wonder if. And then you go and ask them. I think 99% of hurt that happens in church could be avoided if people just said, hey, I mean, to use Brendan's illustration, hey, Brendan, when you looked away, is, there, is, is something wrong? And then he says, oh, not at all. No, something caught my attention. I'm so sorry. Well, we've just avoided something there. Rather than going around everybody in my life group and even asking my fellowship group, would you pray for me? I've just got a challenge with one of the pastors right now. What? And suddenly everybody starts to get concerned. Oh, yes, I noticed that. Yes, they're very exclusive. They're very exclusive. Do you see how quickly it happens? It causes damage. It causes destruction. It causes difficulty. The moment we find ourselves thinking about others, believing that you already know in their hearts, that you know what's going on in their hearts, so I think sinful judging is at your door. The second test is this. If you find yourself then talking about others in a way that you simply wouldn't do if they were with you or Jesus was with you, then you are right now simply judging. Guarantee it. Because if you, if you wouldn't say it in front of that person, why not? Why wouldn't you say it? If you wouldn't say it if Jesus is in the room, why not? If you can't finish a conversation and then get on your knees and worship the Lord, something dramatically has just gone wrong. 
and what's being communicated. James is telling us, do not speak evil against one another. Do not speak against, do not speak down, do not speak bad. Well, if we live like that, then even if the person that we're finding difficult is in the room, we'd still talk the same. We might share it slightly different tone, but in essence, we're aware, yeah, I, I need to chat to them about that. The moment we find ourselves talking about others in a way that we would not do if they were there, or if Jesus was there, sinful judging has already arrived in your life. Now, if we're honest, I think this is hard, is it not? It's not hard on a Sunday because we all love each other and we give each other hugs. It's hard on the way home, or Monday, or Tuesday, or Wednesday. When the week goes on, Satan wants to do all he can to divide a church. He loves to divide a church. So there will always be a barrage of difficulties, a barrage of arrows coming their way. And given the reality of our hearts, that the Bible says they're sinful above all things, and for even as a Christian, there's a battle going on in our hearts. We want to do right, but we find it hard. And given the reality of our tongues, that they flap about all the time with 25,000 little words all day, and that they can be like a fire that just in a moment sparks something off and a forest fire emerges. Given the reality of our hearts and our tongues, we are in great, great danger on this issue, are we not? Well, that's why James gives us then number three, the glorious remedy. Here's my conclusion. Here's the remedy. We keep looking up. That's the remedy to this. Given the fact that our hearts are deceitful, given the fact that our tongue can, in a moment, light a fire and do people so much damage, and that in truth our, our inkling is even there. We don't mean to all the time, but it happens and it gets away from us. The only remedy and the only hope we have is Jesus. He's our only hope. That's why James tells us in verse 6, but he gives more grace to grace we all need it is our only hope for being able to control our tongues and control our hearts and control our disposition to think we see like god we need his grace we need to draw near to him knowing that he will draw near to us as we do we need to humble ourselves before the lord knowing that as we do he will exalt us He's the giver of grace. I don't know about you, but each week I've gone home from James feeling, well, that's definitely me. So there's something else I've got to change in. Listen, if you're overwhelmed by that, then you have simply not understood grace yet. Because he wants us to see our face in the mirror, and then he wants us to run to the cross and go, oh my, thank you. Thank you for dying for me, given the reality of who I am. And then, Lord, would you help me? Because I ain't never going to manage this without you. He's driving us to the cross. It shouldn't make us feel condemned. It should make us feel convicted and then running to him for grace. It should make us more dependent on him. And it should make the cross way bigger as you realize, this is who I actually am. And yet he died for me, knowing who I really am so that I may have life and that in abundance. My friends, if you're here today as a Christian, I want to encourage you, you are here then because of the saving grace of God alone. That's it. 
If you're here today worshipping Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you are here because before the foundation of the earth, he chose you. He predestined you for adoption in Christ. It's the only reason why you're singing the songs this morning. It's the only reason why you love Jesus. Because in grace, he came after you. And at the right time, he sent his son to die on a cross. And through his saving death and resurrection, he gave you life and that in abundance. The only reason why you're here today is because of his saving grace alone. And the only reason why you're going to make it is because of his sustaining grace alone. It's future grace. Upon salvation, he gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit. As what? A deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Not about you, but guarantee in English. My English means guarantee. It does in your English as well. It's a guarantee. It's a done deal. Guaranteed. Are you a Christian? Yes. I guarantee to you, you'll go to heaven. Well, can you be sure? Yes. God tells us. Holy Spirit's alive and well in your heart. It's a guarantee. Heaven will be your home. So what you're saying is, it started all by His grace. Yes. It will finish all by His grace. Yes. So what about the middle bit? That is all by His grace as well. That's the scandal of the gospel. It's all Him. It's not saved by grace. Now I have to work, I have to work, I have to work, and if I work hard enough, He will save me by His grace. No. It starts by His grace. Now we are sustained by His grace again and again and again, and He will carry me all the way to the end where I'll worship Him forever in future grace. It's why Paul says, listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying, listen, you are saved by His grace, but now work. Come on, got to keep it up. Let's go. He's saying, no, listen, having been saved by his grace, live in light of that. Act the miracle. Act the reality of what he's done in your heart. It will never save you. None of your works will save you. But they will be evidence and demonstrations and marks of what God has done in your heart. And you will be useful and effective on this earth. You'll become more like my son. But then Paul very quickly says in the same verse, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Same verse. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, so it's all about me. No! You have a part to play. But it is God who works in you and wills in you for his good pleasure and he will carry you all the way to the end. Past grace, present grace, future grace. So what do we do when we feel a conviction of sin in our hearts? What do we do when we're aware, man, I can be tempted to sinful judging? We keep looking up. And we run to the one who gives us more grace. We draw near to the one who will draw near to us. And we humble ourselves before the Lord, knowing that he will exalt me. Jesus is our only hope. So keep looking up, and as you do, may we all then be eager to maintain and enjoy the unity. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we close the book of James for a few months, Lord, it is a delight to consider that it is all by your grace. Oh, Lord, it is is humbling, it is invigorating, it is exciting news. To know it's all you. 
If I'm even leading into change, well, that's you. That's your Holy Spirit alive and well, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And if any change happens in my life, if any of it actually comes off, it's because of you. It's because you've worked in us to will us to future grace. Oh, Lord, as we finish then this series in James, at least for now, Lord, would we look up Would we get our eyes off ourselves and would we look up to the remedy? Would we put away our desire to control and figure it all out ourselves? Would we put all our good deeds and all our bad deeds to one side and would we flee to the cross where there is grace for today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that? Why? Because you give more grace. Lord, thank you. Thank you for being the grace giver. You are our only hope. So would we all entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.